Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a really inspiring conversation with the designer and educator, Aggie Toppins. Aggie is currently on the faculty at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and maintains a really fascinating studio practice where her work and research focuses on active citizenship and intellectual pursuit. In this episode, Aggie and I talk about how she discovered graphic design as a child and then why she decided to go back to grad school after a successful career working in graphic design. We also talk about how she started teaching and how being introduced to critical theory completely changed her own practice and why it's now important for her to introduce this kind of thinking to her own undergraduate students. I was first introduced to Aggie's work because she is also an alumni of MICA, where she finished her MFA a few years before I did. And as you'll hear in this conversation, our experiences and careers have had a similar trajectory. So I really loved getting the chance to talk to her and found her enthusiasm completely contagious and this conversation just so interesting. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. These memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this really inspiring conversation with Aggie Toppins. You know, I kind of want to start, though, I don't really know anything about your background at all, or how you kind of got into this. And so how did you did you study design? How did you get interested in graphic design? Well, um, maybe I'll start with the background and how that led to design. I'll do it that way. Sure. Okay, so I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And I don't know if you've been to Columbus, but it's I've driven through it. Yeah, it's, I, I grew it's up in a, Indiana, so I, I'm familiar <laughs> with the Midwest. Yeah, so Columbus is a big city. It's broad avenues, a lot of um, like chain businesses. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of an everywhere USA. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's often used as a test market because it's so such a sampling of everywhere, you know? Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, but I grew up, um, I was raised by my, my mother with some help from my aunt and my grandparents. And I grew up in what you would say is a low-income family. Like, we struggled financially. It was very hard at times. And uh, so I think my first – I share that because I think it has some impact on the way I, I yeah. teach and, and think about design. But um, I remember, like, always – like, kids love to draw, right? Yeah. It's yeah. My mother really cultivated that in me, though. I was thinking about this the other day because, I don't know, something something brought it up, but – when I was a kid, like we didn't have a lot of money to do things or like go places or we didn't have like tons and tons of toys. So I drew a lot of pictures. I read a lot of books. Yeah. And my mom would do this thing where she she would cut pictures out of the newspaper and bring them to me and ask me to make up stories about what I saw in the pictures. Oh, wow. And I, I hardly remember this now, but I, you know, we've talked about it since, you know, and it's kind of funny because this is a similar activity that I do with my sophomores now, like where we talk about, like, look at this image and let's talk about yeah. how we derive meaning from this image, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, even before I can remember, she was kind of cultivating a visual literacy. Oh, that's great. So as I was growing up, you know, I, I just always thought I would do something creative. I really loved school. I loved school. I wanted to go to college really, really bad. And I thought about it all the time as a child. Um, I loved, I loved like looking at maps and reading about other cultures. And I started studying French when I was a kid. Like there was this show on public TV that I watched and I was learning words. And then I went to a, a public school where I could learn French when I was like 11. Oh, wow. So I was trying really hard to become a knowledgeable person despite kind of having some, some kind of economic constraints, you know, mm-hmm. public schools in uh, Columbus are pretty great. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that I, like I grew up around people who were like lots of different like backgrounds from me. Yeah. That's something now I value a lot because I teach in a state that, you know, struggles with equity and diversity. Right. But growing up in a city where there were always people in my class that looked different than me and spoke yeah. different languages and I really value that now. 
So I, I kind of felt like I always wanted to do something that was like intellectual or, or creative, yeah. but nobody in my family, like I was such a black sheep in that way. So, so uh, I don't know. I, I remember the first time I heard about graphic design was from someone like at church maybe. Okay. Um, so, you know, I was really interested in what that was. I made little books at home and, I, you know, I drew letters sometimes because I thought they looked cool. <laughs> So, you know, like you do these things as a kid and you don't know why. Yeah. Um, so I visited someone I, that I went to church with at her job. She worked at a company called Fitch, which at the time had accounts with like hush puppy shoes and stuff yeah. like that. So this would have been like 1995-ish. Okay. I was about 15. And I visited her company and I saw like just it was the coolest place I had ever seen. It was big and open and clean. And uh, all these people had workstations where they were drawing, and the computer was relatively new in our field at that time. I mean, it was still mm -hmm. yeah. people yeah, yeah. figuring out how to incorporate it, you know, into professional work. So she had this beautiful Macintosh on her desk, and all these markers, and she was drawing like tiny images of horses. Just she had like maybe fifty little drawings of horses on her yeah. desk. Yeah, and I was looking at those horses, thinking. I'm going to do this for a living. Like this oh, is wow. what I want to do because she had a great living and she looked very happy and she was doing things that I did for fun. Yeah. Yeah. And like my grandmother washed dishes in a hot hospital kitchen all day. Yeah. My grandfather had like mangled hands from a plastic factory for me to think that I could like get a job drawing horses was like a huge life moment. So I thought I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a designer. Um, and I went to a fantastic arts impact public high school in Columbus called Fort Hayes. Okay. I, I had, um, well, it was a great school. It was, it was also a college prep school. So my academic classes in undergrad were oh, a, lot, a lot less challenging yeah. than my studios were, but I took painting and drawing and printmaking and computer graphics. Um, had a wonderful art teacher named Mr. Walton who was just so fun. And, and, uh, you know, I sang competitively. I loved music, but like I couldn't, like couldn't buy instruments or anything right, like that. Right, so I just yeah. started singing and, I took foreign language and stuff like that. And all of those things kind of come together. If you're interested in language and you're interested in yeah. visual form, like design is a great, the graphic design is a great field yeah. for you, you know? So um, I, I uh, went to college at the University of Cincinnati, the okay. College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning, mm -hmm. which most people affectionately refer to as DAP. So I went to DAP. Okay, um, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's the it's the same school that Michael Beirut right. went to. Yeah. So he's like our you know, golden alumni, uh, <laughs> alumni person. But uh, when I went to school, it was like a huge deal for my family. I was a first-gen college student. I moved away when I was 18, and I remember it being so hard. I mean, I loved it, but it was so hard. The studios were like, like the hardest classes I'd ever taken. And I was my high school valedictorian. I was very used to rigor. Yeah. Um, but, but I was like floored by how hard the studios were and I remember like just having to it was a challenge to just like pay for it you right. know like yeah. I worked I worked like sometimes three jobs on top of school oh, wow. uh, in addition to having scholarships and loans so I, I teach students now who are kind of like the student I once was they're working yeah. really hard they're often first gen and so it just brings me a lot of joy to kind of I don't know. Like I can kind of empathize with them a little bit. Like I can, I know what they're, they're kind of going through. Yeah. So I don't know. That's part of why I like teaching where I teach because I kind of like get, yeah. I get it, you know? Um, so DAP was a very modernist program and okay. I don't know what your undergrad was like, but ours was like super Swiss. Yeah. Um, my professors were educated by Paul Rand at Yale and Armin Hoffman in Switzerland right. and, so we were taught the kind of modernist ethos, you know. Um, it was a Bachelor of Science in Design. It was oh, not okay. a BS. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we were like a hair's breadth away from wearing lab coats type of thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like it was really logical, uh, methodical. There were things that were designed and things that were not. There were yeah. rules. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of grateful for that, too. I mean, it was it was a discipline in which I felt like I, I learned a lot about craft, you know, right. and... Um, but it was also the kind of thing where there's so much we didn't talk about that kind of shocked me later after school. Yeah. I remember reading 
I don't know. I, I worked in the DAP library too. So I looked at like critique magazine and like, um, mm. yeah, that back when critique was yeah. still around. Yeah. Print and, and I, and I also read art magazines like Parquet and stuff, but I'd be sitting at the circulation desk at like nine thirty at night reading the magazines. And I would see things like David Carson. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't talk about stuff like that in class. <laughs> So I knew there was more to design than what we were getting in that moment, but I was still really kind of grateful for that kind of discipline. Right. And then when I graduated, I, you know, one of the things that was nice about that program was there was a pretty strong internship mm-hmm. uh, aspect to it. Mm-hmm. So I had about a year and a half of experience when I graduated. So I was able to get a junior design position right away. I worked as an, at an environmental graphic design firm for okay. a couple of years. And it wasn't, I mean, I, I see why people love it. Like one of my good friends from school is an environmental graphic designer, um, Chris McCampbell, but uh, I, it wasn't my thing. I learned some, I learned a lot about like uh, materials and I learned mm-hmm. about shaping an experience, like mm-hmm. how a person enters a space and mm-hmm. encounters a space. But ultimately I wanted to, I wanted to do like image making and work with typography. And I was still really excited by the kind of narrative potential of brand identities right. and um, and printed work. So I was looking for something else and I really wanted to move out of Ohio. I okay. had the yeah. lust pretty bad. <laughs> so I moved to Chicago when I was 25 and I, I got a job at a company called SGDP. Okay. And it cha- they changed their name to Simple Truth Communication Partners. Like, okay. That sounds familiar. They're in Chicago. They're, I mean, they're an interesting place. It was um, a wonderful job at first. I got to do all the things I had hopes to do, you know. Oh, nice. Yeah. I got to work on annual reports for nonprofits that did veterinary research. And one of my clients was the Chicago History Museum. So stuff like that was just really, really fun. But eventually, you know, I I became like a little more senior. I became a senior designer. I was there for five years. Okay. And and the time was coming for something new. The recession had had hit. Right. Things were changing. And I thought there were so many things about design that I hadn't experienced yet. Like – I wanted more education. I wanted, I wanted something else, and I just didn't know what that was yet. At the same time, I was mentoring students. I was working with students who okay. were in undergrad, um, just to you know, kind of let them know what the profession was like. Mm-hmm. You know? And I really liked that, but I couldn't quite put my finger on why I liked that. You know? Yeah. So I thought, I think it's time for grad school. I think it's time to to maybe revisit my education. Um, I was considering maybe teaching and not maybe like creative director life. Right. Was more right. And maybe, and I remembered, you know, like, why did I get into this? I, I was excited about ideas. I was excited about experimentation and I kind of like lost touch with that a little bit working in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was just time. It was yeah. time to like, back, you know, <laughs> I mean, before, before I, before you move on, like there's so much, um, there's so much of this story that sounds so similar to mine actually in a, in a couple different ways that that I thought was interesting was was your undergrad education which I've I've been thinking about my own undergrad education mm-hmm. a lot lately and I don't it was also very swiss um focused but I don't think I don't know maybe this is not something that I should be like talk, trying to work through while we're we're recording <laughs> okay. but I really I've been thinking about this a lot I don't I don't think it was ever defined as you're learning this the swiss style like i don't think that word was used to define it it was just this is what graphic design is um like this this is how you do it yeah this is the right way um (laughs) and i've i i I don't know why i've just been thinking about that a lot lately and i was i like ate it up i was really good at like i i loved setting grids and and doing all of that and i think kind of going so deep into following those rules has ended up kind of influencing the way my work has moved away from that later. Yeah, me too. Um, And, and is exactly, you know, that's how I, just like you again, was able to kind of get a job right away, work my way up, and then had this moment where it's like, wait a minute, this is not what I got into this for. Uh, Yeah. And so, so how, how, uh, how did you arrive that grad school was kind of the answer? Like when you kind of hit that moment or started thinking about that, what was it about? There were a couple grad things. School? Yeah, there were a couple things that influenced the decision. First, I, 
I was starting to feel like I didn't know enough about how to experiment. That sounds kind of, it sounds kind of silly, but, but I don't think that we were really taught to think that way. There was a right way and you do that, you do that way. And I was really good at that way, (laughs) you know, that sort of like method of, of, that we were taught. But, um, I wanted to like think about how I made work more Mm -hmm. and I wanted to have more methods and, and more resources to try and make with more diversity in, Mm -hmm. in my work. I, I felt like there was probably something I hadn't done yet that because I didn't know myself enough. Like we weren't taught to cultivate practices. We weren't taught to have a voice, you know. Right, Just, right. We were taught, you know, to be kind of like chameleons in a way. Like you you uh, twist and bend visual form and give them content yeah. to um, serve something, serve a client, serve serve something. Yeah. And, I remember when I thought I wanted to go to grad school, I thought I have to write a statement and I don't even know what I care about. I just, I care about this, but what is this? You know? Yeah. So I, I looked at everything I had made and I started looking at my favorite projects and trying to draw out of them what, what attracted me to them and piece together yeah. some kind yeah. of application. Yeah. I was drawn to Micah, I think, because for lots of reasons, I felt like just really at home there. Like the, the professors were really mm-hmm, just really committed to us and mm-hmm. really wanted some kind of mentorship that way. Yeah. But I also felt like it was the right place to figure myself out. Yeah. Like lots of places to try new skills or all kinds of skills that I didn't have that I wanted to, to, to get from experts. So I had taken, like I took lots of typography but I had never taken any lettering. And so I took lettering with Ken Barber and, right. and Ben Keel. And um, I never print, did any printmaking. So lots of silk screen and letter pressing. But I was also really interested in like motion and interactivity and what does code do? And yeah. super excited about learning new methods. Um, I had never done anything field research wise. So I've never done any of that mm, stuff yeah, in yeah. my career. So I had an like I had an internship at IDEO between the first and second year oh, of school. Wow. I learned some methods from that, you know, the limits of those methods as well. But it was an it was an interesting new set of things to think about. I was I was a part of the Center for Design Practice at MICA, which okay. was yeah. so about like how do you build criteria from yeah. the situation you're learning from, you know? Like not being an expert but being a learner as part of right. being a designer. Right. And I was really interested in, um, like, Keetra Dean Dixon taught there for the oh, two yeah. years of yeah. school. And I'm, like, super grateful that those two years overlapped because she's a she's a huge influence to me. But I was really interested in material exploration and in, like, procedures and operations. Yeah. That was, like, a big uh, shift for me to I, think about things like that. I have a, This is a, a weird question, and it might be a little bit of me kind of projecting my story onto onto your your story a little bit but did you as you were doing these experiments and as you were kind of going through these you know learning new processes and methods and even even before you got to Micah and we're just thinking I want to go back to school this job I'm in this kind of career that I'm in right now isn't what I thought it was going to be or isn't doing what I thought it was going to be did you ever have a moment where you thought that maybe maybe graphic design wasn't the right thing like maybe it wasn't graphic design that you wanted to do or that maybe the the problem wasn't like the career like the job you're in but was actually with quote-unquote graphic design yeah I I I thought if I wondered if I should go to an art program yeah like the thing is is that I just love graphic design I love the stuff of graphic design yeah I love the history of it I love the values I love the Stuff of type, type, and and, and like <laughs> yeah. synthesizing it with image, and I just I love I love design. I love the way it looks, love the way it smells, you know. So yeah. I just I felt like this is the language that I use. I yeah. just want to use it to give form to my own thought. I don't necessarily want to give form to someone else's ideas right now. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are a lot of uh, different ways of looking at authorship, and I'm really interested in authorship generally as a subject because there's so many different ways of thinking about it. Yeah, and so many different ideas historically about authorship, but I still, I, I value that a designer's voice can be through the presentation of something. I totally value that. Yeah. And sometimes that's what I do, but I'm also really interested in just having my own ideas and yeah, <laughs> writing right, about right. my own ideas and making, making the arrangement on the page and making the thing. So I need, I just needed some more, I don't know, some time to develop that, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
Graduate school is also where I learned about critical theory. And I'm okay. a little bit embarrassed to say that because it's something I love so much now, but didn't even know was a thing until yeah. I was like 30. So that's why I'm really interested in introducing it to my students because you shouldn't be 30 when you learn about critical theory. Yeah. I don't think. If, you're, if you are a trained agent of public imagery, <laughs> you should not encounter critical theory for the first yeah. time when you're 30. So how, how did that... How'd that happen? Well, it happened in Ellen Lupton's class. Okay. okay. So That's what I assumed. Yeah, here's Roland Barthes. Yeah. And I read The Death of the Author, and I was like, where has this been my entire life? Like, yeah. what is this writing? I didn't even know I could think about this. And that led to just a hunger for that kind of thing. Um, what was it? What was it about? Sorry to, to cut you off. What was it about that that you were like, oh, this is this yeah, thing that I've been missing? I think it was, um, this is why I'm seduced a little bit by, by this discourse and why I am eager to share it with my students. It, it also came out a lot in my, in my thesis work. I read a lot of critical theory in my yeah. thesis work. Um, I like critical theory because it is an examination of the things we assume to be true. It uncovers mechanisms around yeah. truth. Yeah. And... It helps, it, it sort of like gives me language and gives me like a method for thinking about something that otherwise I would have a poverty of terms. I'll give you an example. So um, my thesis project in grad school was an exploration of the American funeral. I was very interested in why do we do funerals the way we do. Um, I've, I have always personally found funerals to be really like just not meaningful, just not special, mm -hmm. not a reflection of the feeling, you know, not something was wrong with funerals. Um, and so I, I learned a lot of things during my thesis that, um, that I, that populate my practice now, like reading about the history of ideas about something. That's a really important thing that I do now that I didn't know about before grad school. So I read about, you know, American rituals. I read about the history of the funeral industry, right. And how once industry kind of entered the picture, how that kind of changed our, our understanding of this ritual. And then I was starting to read anthropology as well, case studies in other countries about what a funeral is like, how people mm -hmm. memorialize a person, kind of ritualize um, this thing. And then I started reading about things like the spectacle. And yeah. I started, you know, I started reading about things like um, simulacrum. Yep. And so it started with Baudrillard, but then I quickly moved on to Deleuze and Qatari, and I, yeah. oh my gosh, that stuff is... If you don't, if you don't know that that's a thing, and you just look at it and go, "Why is this so weird? Why, why is this so right? What am yeah. I? What am I? What's wrong with this thing?" Yeah. So, <laughs> so theory has been a way to, you know, take the blinders off a little bit on some things. Maybe question assumptions or. Um, I, a theory has also provided me, I think, with some, with some kind of conceptual armature for what I'm dealing with as a designer. And I don't know, the thesis was the first time where that kept happening yeah. over and over. Um, sometimes I think you read, you read something in, in theory and you think, this, I see this as a process. I can see this as a, a sort of generative process. Yeah. Like when I read about deconstruction, like collage is a, is a really ideal language for kind of playing with deconstruction, yeah. right? Yeah. So there are, um, there's definitely... <coughs> links between what we do as designers and the kind of stuff that you read about in theories of language and theories of society. So I want to, I want to, I, I want to keep talking about this, but I have, I, I want to ask another question to kind of better set up kind sure. of this, this role of theory, because again, I think our, our kind of stories or, or interests are, are very parallel um, mm -hmm. where I was like aware of critical theory and, knew the names of these people but had no idea how to yeah how to begin uh and that's what grad school was for me um and halfway through i guess it was probably halfway through my i guess it was the second semester of my first year i added that as a as a critical theory as a concentration because i was just i just got so obsessed with it kind of it sounds like kind of similar similar to you um but before we talk about that a little bit more did you so when you finished at micah did you know that you wanted to get into teaching or, you know, how did those, how did teaching really then become such a big part of what you do? 
Yeah, I, I had a feeling that I wanted to teach when okay. I started grad school. I just didn't know when it would happen. You know, yeah. I thought well, I should probably be older or something or I don't know. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I just had I didn't really know what would happen. Yeah. I, I you know like a lot of the MFA students I was a, like a GPI for someone. Yep. Um, yeah. And I did that for a while, and then I, I went to IDEO for an internship, and it, I liked that experience because I learned a lot. But I knew that I didn't want to work there. Mm -hmm. I knew that that wasn't yeah. that wasn't what I was going to try to do after school, and it was almost like I don't know fortuitous in a way. Like Rocket emailed me and asked me if I would teach graphic design one that semester. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, okay, let's try it. I don't know what I'm doing. I had like a week to figure it out. Yeah. And um, oh, I loved it so much. I just like, I, it, was an, it was ineffable. I could not explain to you why I loved it. I think it was just exciting for me to think about graphic design as a whole field. Yeah. Instead yeah. of like the thing I did at work, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it was exciting to share, you know, something you just kind of love with people who are trying to learn it. Yeah. And I was really excited by meeting students and, learning about what they wanted to make. So it felt right. And, you know, you apply for academic positions like December-ish. Right. And I thought, well, let's see what happens. <laughs> so Brockett was a, a super significant person to me. She is a huge mentor for me, Brockett Horn. Yeah. And um, I talked with her a lot about teaching, about methods of teaching. I showed her my application I applied for a lot of jobs, and then it was a good year for that. There was just a lot of graphic design tenure track yeah. positions. And when in. when was this? During my thesis. Okay. But but I mean, but but what? How what long year? ago was this? Yeah. It was twenty eleven, turning into twenty twelve. So I okay. graduated twenty twelve. Yeah, okay. my, okay. my I began teaching in twenty twelve. Okay. At UTC, so I was interviewing for jobs. While finishing wow, yeah. thesis, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of wild. Yeah. Um, at the time, Christian Bjornard was I was taking an elective with him, and he's a good friend. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I was he's taking the best. an elective with him, and I just kept having to not be there so I could go to go to <laughs> these interviews. And yeah. I was like, Christian, you can technically fail me. And he's like, Hmm, should I? You know, like it was kind of a funny thing between us that he could like. Yeah. prevent from graduating <laughs> that is amazing but, you know we were friends and he was very patient with my absences but um yeah so i i chose i had a i was lucky and i had a, a couple of options mm -hmm. and i chose utc because it was such a good alignment with what i cared about mm -hmm. as an educator and it was i'll tell you it was really comforting to know that i had an exciting new challenge after school was over yeah and I, was, I felt really good about it. Like I was like excited about it. You know? yeah. um, so I finished school and we moved to Chattanooga and that was a whole new set of adventures. Um, the first few years of teaching for me was kind of like decompressing graduate school. Yeah. And like, you know, yeah. cause it's so hot and fast and <laughs> it's like four semesters of chaos and, and, yeah. And, and then you think to yourself, what just happened? Like, what did I just learn? And what am I going to do with the pieces now? And you feel like you've accomplished something, but at the same time, it's what you do with it in the next stage of your life that is kind of the ultimate test, right? Right, yeah. Um, at the same time, I was learning to be a teacher. I had only, I taught also in the spring after I had gotten my job. So I was, and in the oh, summer, yeah. I just pre-college at Micah too. So okay. I had only like three semesters, two and a half semesters, yeah. of teaching experience before I started a tenure track uh, yeah. job. Wow. So it was definitely a lot of on the job learning. Yeah. But it was it it was really exciting. I mean, I had to I had to like make I had I had a lot of control over my classes. And that's part of why I love our program. I'm one of two graphic design professors. So oh, Okay. I work really closely with my colleague Matt Greenwell, who has he's been at the university longer than me. He's, and he's older than me, but we have a really great working relationship. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of, um, I don't know, really in simpatico. Yeah. And he was like, how about you teach these classes? These are the classes we have. How about you teach these? I teach these. And he didn't even give me any prior syllabi or anything. He oh, was just wow. like, yeah. Here. at the time, he was actually the department head. And he stepped down my first year so that he could come back. Like, we could, like, rebuild in a way or, oh, like, wow. re-graphic yeah. design together. Um. And and so we've had a really I don't know we just had a really great working partnership for for the six year this is my sixth year so uh, yeah. for six years 
And, you know, he was really like, I could talk to him, like, I, I'm trying to work this thing out, you know, and we could work on things yeah. together. Yeah. And so he was a really great mentor for the tenure process. And, and yet he trusted me with my own expertise. So it was a really good situation, mm -hmm. you know, to develop a teaching. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean I really, uh, I'm sorry that I keep just like, highlighting the parallels in our, our careers. But it's, it's really funny to me, because it was the exact same thing that uh, Brockett emailed me in the second year and said and knew that I was in, you know, I kind of was interested in teaching I had mm -hmm. when I was in undergrad, one of my professors kind of said offhandedly to me, like, you know, you're going to be a teacher, right? Um, <laughs> and so that was kind of always in my head. And uh, Brockett emailed me my second year and was like, you know, do you want to teach a class in the fall? And I again, I think I had like, two weeks to kind of put everything together. Um, and it was like this kind of immediate, oh, this is exactly the thing that I wanted to do. Yeah. And the thing that is interesting to me, I'm curious, it sounds similar to you, but I'm curious uh, what you think about this is that for me, teaching and the, the classroom are the place where all of the things that I love about graphic design actually come together in the clearest way where it's it's making and practice and aesthetics and visuals but then it's also critical theory and writing and criticism and then it's talking about this thing that I love so much and all of these things come together and that doesn't happen anywhere else for me right. at absolutely no point in my life when I worked in the profession did anybody go oh man you're making something like that you should read Foucault <laughs> <laughs> happened yeah so, yeah. you know, sort of like if you're excited by ideas, if you like just love ideas and yeah. love the potential of them and the power of them, academia is a great place to be. Yeah. Um, because you're plant, you're you're really like engaging ideas, but you're finding ways to map those ideas onto, like the stuff of your own field, right? Your type and image and stuff like that. When you so, I'm I'm interested in why, you decided to go to jump, basically all in in academia and not kind of do the adjunct thing and go back to kind of a, a regular job or start your own thing or or do yeah. do like what was it what were you thinking of kind of this is going to be my main thing now yeah i definitely was done with commercial practice okay. i mean i still did some freelancing when i was yeah. um, working towards tenure mm -hmm. um but i didn't want to work for like a company anymore that yeah just doing like one thing in design i wanted like you were just saying a second ago, the classroom and maybe like even outside of the classroom, like your professorship, your identity as a professor is a convergence of many things. And I was really interested in that, that challenge. Yeah. Um, I, I did, I only taught adjunct at MICA and you know, I don't exactly know why I thought let's make the leap. I think I wanted to just see what would happen. Yeah. I applied to jobs, not totally sure that I would be qualified for them. But I wanted the experience of seeing a campus visit. I had the attention of our esteemed faculty at MICA to coach right. me. Right. And, um, you know, it just, the opportunity was there. Yeah. And so I was like, let's do it. Yeah. It's the time here. That's great. And I'm really grateful for it. I mean, UTC is, you know, it's not like a top ranked school or anything, but it is exactly where I want to be. Yeah. I love my students. I love the kind of culture we have. I work with people who I feel really philosophically aligned with. Oh, and it's a, it's an institution that supports us pretty well. Yeah. Like our research is supported pretty well with grants from the institution. Um, and, you know, Chattanooga is not a place I ever thought I would live. I've always lived in big cities up north. Yeah. But I like living here. This is a city that um, if you're interested in another thing we haven't really talked a whole lot about, but is important to me is is how do you use your work to be a more active citizen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about yeah. this, so this is great. Yeah, Chattanooga is a great place for that because it's a very it's small enough that you can see the impact of your of your work. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of civic energy. People yeah. want to be part of of being right, there. Right. Right. And you know, it's like every city; it, it has uh, some problems. You know, we have equity and diversity problems. We have uh, a lot of a lot of people who economically suffer. Mm. We have all kinds of um, interesting urbanism issues with growth. And, yeah. and I get to be part of those conversations in a really public way. And I'm not, I don't know if I've ever lived in a city where I felt so involved with what's happening in the city. So maybe yeah. it's just because it was the time in my life when it's time to start doing right. things like that. Right. But in Chicago, you know, the problems are kind of like wicked problems. And 
you might be able to do things as part of an organization or you might be able to do things in your in your neighborhood but in chattanooga mm-hmm. one person can impact the whole city right um, yeah it's kind of an interesting thing to, and, to you know to think about and so is that kind of work your kind of primary i i, I don't want to use the word commercial work but like those are the types of that's the type of kind of design work outside of teaching that you do that's kind of the main main thing now kind of i mean i don't know if i have a main thing okay. that's something i'm trying to figure out okay. um so i also kind of feel like a constant prototype oh, I, love <laughs> um, that. I love the way keetra dean dixon talks about her work because she talks about it as like a work in progress you know mm-hmm. say i don't know if you've listened to her talk about her work but she yeah. she um she'll talk about the things that she's done and how she arrived at new plateaus in her practice right and she talk about where she is and where she's going and and i i'm always like sometimes you listen to people talk about their work and they seem like they have it all figured out and they totally know what they're doing and i don't do, does anybody ever really know what they're doing? <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you know? so i kind of i kind of like the honesty of just saying you know i'm a prototype like this right. is a prototype. i love that so where I am right now, when I finished school and, and came to Chattanooga, I had no clients. I had no idea what I was going to do, but it was like a it was like a clean slate kind of thing. Yeah. Lots of things came up during the thesis that I knew I couldn't like take on during the scope of that project. Yeah. Lots of little things here, like I want to explore that later. I want to explore that later. And so just to be active as a studio practitioner, I started reading things and making things just based on like the, the sort of loose ends from thesis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I started building up a client base and I worked with clients for like primarily probably as my practice um, okay. for the first five years that okay. I was here. And you know, the reason why I did that, this kind of, I don't, I don't know if this is a good thing to say or not, but <laughs> the reason why I did this is because when you're on a tenure track, you do have to prove to the Institute oh, right. yeah. that you're, your field validates you that yeah. you are being peer reviewed somehow. And, and my institution accepted client commissions mm. as original knowledge. So client commissions, um, that was a very clear way to start building a professional profile. Those things qualify for design awards too. Mm. I don't know if I care that much about design awards, to be honest, I don't, Yeah. but they are a way of demonstrating to the institution. See, my work has been validated by my field. So I was able to, you know, rack up some things like that. And I guess, I guess I thought to myself, this is interesting. I'm getting to know people in my community, but this isn't what I want to do really. Yeah. Um, I started building up a, what I would call an independent practice. Um, some people call it a personal practice, but I don't really know that term. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, yeah. personal practice is like, oh, I designed some labels for my, um, I don't know, my like DVD collection. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's personal where it's actually just used yeah. by you. But I, I was more interested in, in, in graphic design as the language mm-hmm. for giving form to my thought. So what am I thinking about and what am I making in response to that? The challenge is where to put it afterwards because right. it can't just live in your studio or in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started building an exhibition record. And there are a lot of problems with exhibiting graphic design and I'm you know engaged in that discourse too. But I also found like sometimes what you make can go in a gallery. Sometimes yeah. it can fit there and, and be a good, you know, it's a conversation. It's, you know, um, sometimes I make, I started making a lot of little zines at first just to like make something to like yeah. process what I was thinking about. And I've always been really interested in practices that are kind of like unprecious daily activities or routine activities mm. because it just keeps you generative, you know? Mm-hmm. So I started making zines, not really knowing if I was ever going to show them or yeah. do anything with them. And eventually people were like, those are, like good <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I kept doing it. I was like, okay, well maybe I'll show these in the show or go to an art book fair or something. And, and that became kind of a part of my, my, my work. Yeah. So then it became a, a, a way of demonstrating peer review. So then, then there kind of, then there were kind of like two divergent practices. There was like the independent work and then the client work. Right. And I was having a lot of trouble making those things converge for some reason. And at, after tenure, I got tenure last summer. I thought now is the time to think about what I can do with this privilege. So tenure is a gift that allows you to take risks. Yeah. I don't have to like win design awards every year. I don't have to like chase those things anymore. I the gift of tenure is what risks do I take now? I can use several years to do a project. I can do something more ambitious. Right. Um, and that's what I'm trying to figure out now. I 
I'm not doing client work so much anymore. I am interested in communities though. I am interested in like being the person at the table who is the designer on some kind of public yeah. multi-organizational effort. Yeah. I've been involved with um, some efforts in the city to um, help uh, voter turnout. And also I'm working against oh, yeah. voter suppression in Tennessee. So Tennessee's 50th in the nation in terms of voter turnout. Oh, and wow. We, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an issue. And we have a lot of uh, voter suppression happening, yeah. like disenfranchisement, for example, where you, yeah. you go to prison, you don't get to vote anymore. So I've been working with, um, with different organizations in the city to try and use communication strategies to give people information, just like how to get back their rights, yeah. how to get to the polls. Um, and that's something that I, I guess like there's an aspect of that that counts as peer review, but I'm doing that because of my heart needs me to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that. this is a way that I can just be a citizen, like, you know? Yeah. And then I, I still like, I have a studio practice that shares traits, I think in a lot of ways with what a contemporary artist does. I go to my studio, I make things, I sit and stare at the walls sometimes. I have practices, I have like methods that I attend to, yeah. you know, yeah. and sometimes that adds up to a, a larger body of work and that work gets shown. Right. Okay. Well, somewhere. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to talk about that a little bit and then hopefully use this as a way to bring back in, uh, the critical theory and, and kind of connect that to the classroom a little bit, because the first, I, I don't know if you would call this as, I don't know if you call these zines or not, but at the New York art book fair, I saw your, um, critical theory cocktail yeah. little booklets. <laughs> um, and so I guess I kind of have two questions around that or, or maybe one question around it that can lead to a bigger question but what i thought was interesting about those and is something that i think about a lot i think you and i have talked about this on twitter a little bit is how do you make critical theory accessible how do you make it so uh you know like thinking about my younger self who knew that this stuff existed and it seemed like something i'd be interested in but didn't know how to get into it mm -hmm. and those the critical theory cocktails seem like a really good way to do that uh and so i'm curious how you think about that um both both as like part of your practice and and how that fits into your practice but then also as a educator how you how you mm -hmm. kind of introduce these things to students yes yes so um well, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you a little bit about that project and then I'll move into the bigger questions. Great. So that project started because, uh, I, I really am interested in food histories, food okay. rituals and crafts. Yeah. Um, I was on a road trip with my husband and I was really into theory. Like re I was, I don't even know what I was reading at the time, but I was digging into something and we were learning to make cocktails at home okay. and just, it was kind of like a light bulb moment. Like what if we brought these two things together? Because so good. <laughs> I, would, I thought it would be fun for me to do something in terms of like writing something and making something to help me process what I was reading. Yeah. Because these are challenging. The ideas are, they're really, in, they're really interesting, but they're also like really complex. Yeah. So by having to make something in response to it was a way of coming, like making sense out of it or what sense can be made out of it. Mm -hmm. So again, it was the, the project existed to be generative, to be, to like, to sort of like learn things. But, uh, and I didn't, it was almost like, this is, I thought it was a kind of a dumb idea in a way, <laughs> but, it, but it ended up being interesting to people. Like yeah. books have really caught on. People seem to like them. So not, I'm working on a fourth issue right now. Oh, so great. hopefully going to be another one soon, but it takes a long time to like think of cocktails and it takes a long time to understand and read theory. So they come out like every year or two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but the question about accessibility, I think this is a really important thing. Um, and I know that we've talked a little bit about can undergraduates read theory? Mm -hmm. um, some people don't think that undergraduates can understand theory. I'm not saying that, that you do, but a lot of people yeah. say that to me. You know, I meet them at conferences and stuff. Yeah. And I just don't think that's true. Yeah, uh, I, yeah I agree. I, I think uh, I would have loved to have read theory in undergrad. <clears throat> but it isn't a matter of reading it and completely 100% understanding it. In fact, even philosophers who have PhDs and, right. and don't understand it. it. It's not about whole understanding. It's mm -hmm. about engaging the ideas because 
because ideas are interesting and lead to other ideas. Yeah. So I tell my students, they at, we have my very first class in graphic design, sophomore, fall so, sophomore studio, yeah. an sure. image making studio that is couched in semiotic theory. Mm. And they have to read, you know, Bart's mythologies. And we start with Bart because I think Bart is really accessible. He's a beautiful writer. Yeah. It's still challenging for the students, but you can, you can, it's not impenetrable. It's not Deleuze. It's not Derrida. It's, right. it's a lot easier to read. And he's just such a lovely writer. I sometimes reread his paragraphs just because I like them. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but I tell the students, you know, why do we, why do we read challenging texts? You know, mm-hmm. part of it is because um, if you start by, re- if you start reading challenging texts, then they're, they become less challenging at some point <laughs> in time, right? Mm-hmm. One of the professors I teach with at UTC, she's in philosophy, and she's become a friend of mine. I've actually taken two of her classes. Oh, nice. Her name is Talia Welsh. She says that reading uh, philosophy is like weightlifting, uh, is like the weightlifting of the mind. So if you're an mm. athlete, you don't just go out and play a game. You train by like weightlifting and stuff. Right, right. Running or whatever. And if you're an artist or a designer, you don't just like make stuff. You have to like train your mind. You have to like get used to thinking about the world, right? Yeah. So critical theory is a way of of thinking about the world. It's a, and I kind of already said this, but it's, it examines what seems normal to us, right. what we assume to be true. So, so when students get a hold of that, they might not totally understand everything they read, but then we talk about it in class and um, it starts to make more sense. Like, oh, there's a thing called cultural myth that I need to think about yeah. as a designer or, oh, language is, language is just a system. Language is arbitrary. You know, where does language come from? Language is fluid. Yeah started thinking about signs and, and, you know, just like mental models and assumptions we make, you know, as a culture. And then I think inevitably, if you read a lot of critical theory, you start to question certain mechanisms of capitalism. And that's, I think, really healthy for yeah. a graphic designer, you know. Um, I, I think another thing that I love about introducing critical theory to students is that um, it's inherently intertextual, right? Mm, yeah. So if if you pick up Derrida, he's probably going to talk about like Rousseau at some point or Saussure at some point. Yeah. And if you pick up Zizek, he's going to talk about Lacan. So the students are, are learning to read in a way that's not just like reading an, an article. Right. Or, that's a really good point. Yeah. They're learning to study the text. They're learning to circle things that they don't know what that is. And even if they just have Wikipedia open, yeah, they don't know who, you know, if they don't know who, um, who Freud is, what they do. They, they learn who Freud is. But let's say they don't know what Freud is. They, they just like look up his sort of legacy on Wikipedia and now suddenly that paragraph makes more sense. Yeah. So learning to read like almost through the layers of a text mm-hmm. and how, that is a great life skill. Just <laughs> yeah. beyond, beyond like caring about philosophy, that's a really important skill because graphic design is an expanded practice. It, you have to be collaborative and able to think about more than one thing. You right. know? How do you introduce it introduce these texts to the students are they tied to specific assignments are they tied to you know are, are you relating them to works from design history or kind of how does that fit into the classroom yeah there's a couple ways that this happens um our our program is very sequential okay and i, I think i mentioned this but so i teach sophomores through seniors it's me and one other colleague we teach all of our students and we're with them for their three-year journey mm-hmm. so these things kind of start in small doses and build and then we have a class in our department that every BFA major takes called Critical Theory for the Visual Artist. Oh, I don't wow. teach that class, but I have sat in on it for a semester. Yeah. So I'm really aware of like what they're reading at certain points, like when my projects in studio fall. I know oh, interesting. Um, so <clears throat> there's a little bit of like connecting the dots between what's happening in my studio and what they're reading in another class, because yeah. I know what's doing over there. Right, that's smart. So, a little bit is just like micro moments, like let's make a connection between that thing you read and this thing you're making. And I love to ask them, what are you reading in critical theory right now? Or what's yeah. going on in design history this week? You know, because um, the way that I think, the way that I'm comfortable teaching is through a sort of mentorship model mm-hmm. where you put things in front of the students, you put opportunities in front of the students, and then you help them see their potential. You help them make connections. Yeah, That's kind of like the essence of teaching, right. I think. So, so there's a little bit of that happening. In uh, visual literacy, we read a textbook which was written by David Crow. It's called Visible Signs. Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. It's probably the only textbook that I assign because I'm a big fan of like multiple texts instead of one. Yeah. 
this text is good because he talks about all kinds of different theories. He talks about Bourdieu, Saussure, all kinds of stuff in there. Um, and so what often happens is the text will mention something and I will give the primary text at the same time. Mm. So when we get to cultural myth, that he's talking about Bart and what Bart did, and then I give them a couple essays from mythologies. Mythologies is a great right. way to start out. Yeah. It's super accessible, short. And I love it because it it's using language to kind of uncover, like take the blinders off of these things that we just kind of like yeah. absorb. You know? yeah. uh, and it gets the students thinking about, yeah, it's just thinking about how signs kind of are uh, maybe like the index of these larger yeah. cultural systems, I guess. So we start with BART, and uh, that's attached to projects that we're doing in digital okay. Um, some of those projects are abstract exercises, and then they move into things like book covers and pictograms and okay. things that look like the stuff that they've seen before in graphic design. Um, and then as they, they move into the upper division, junior and senior year, our projects start out with pretty tight constraints, but they're always designed to be open-ended. They're always, mm. there's never like one right answer mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. the, the projects always result in a, a wide range of um, responses. Yeah, and There's a lot of just like, if you're interested in this, you should consider looking this up. So there's a lot of like, in addition to what you're doing, think about this happening in class. But um, so as they move into the junior year, that's when they take critical theory and those, the projects in studio kind of match up to the things that they're reading. Um, okay. We do an authorship project in which they have to uh, present a text and they can only be an author through the presentation of text. Oh, you interesting. Read, you read the death of the author then. This is my junior, my junior class, yeah. which I, I didn't read that till I was 30. Yeah. <laughs> so, the students love it. That's they great. Really yeah. They understand it. They totally get what authorship is because everybody's a little bit of an author. Everybody's right. like on Instagram or whatever, Snapchat. Right. They're authoring stuff all the time. So it's not as unusual of a topic to them probably as it was a generation ago, right? Yeah. yeah. So they're working on a kind of motion graphics piece that involves presentation of a text. They're reading Bart and, and they're also reading Michael Rock at that time. Right. That maps onto uh, another project that we do is a kind of a, a process of building analogs, like forced connections between things, and they read some Foucault at that time. Okay. Um, this is actually something I learned from Stephen Farrell at SAIC. He okay. was a visiting artist, and yeah. I really liked the way that he married Foucault to a kind of, pro like a, a sort of intentional way of thinking. Our project is a little different, but um, they understand like why Foucault is important. Yeah. They read this project in which we read a little bit from the order of things. Oh yeah. Um, we're talking about like how knowledge is grounded, like where does discourse come from? How do, how does a history of a field, for example, like lend its lend us lend a sense of truth to the present? You know, right? They read that, as the same time as they're reading Discipline and Punish in um, oh, wow. critical theory. So they're it's, getting like I'm so jealous. Getting, <laughs> I know. I, 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 I wish I had this too. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so then, uh, you know, as we move through the junior year, there's stuff like that happening where there, there's like readings happening at the same time mm -hmm. as projects. But then when they become seniors, um, and you know, my colleague does this too, he'll give them like situationist international readings and then they do oh, some wow. kind of connotative mapping project or yeah. something. And we are aware of each other's, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. assignments. So when they become seniors, uh, then the, the projects open up entirely and they're just making whatever they want to make. And it's a lot it's a lot like a graduate level That's great. Uh, education. Yeah. <clears throat> the students propose their project for the year, essentially. It's at least like half of both the fall and spring semester. So it's kind of like a mini mm -hmm. thesis. That we call it a capstone. But the students design their own project. They, they make up their own thing. And, and the, the goal <laughs> is that out of all the little things that they've engaged with up until that point, that they have, have connected the dots enough to identify an interest, right? I am interested in these things. So um, that's when it becomes really custom to the student. Oh, right. I see that you're thinking about how Pinterest um, mm -hmm. conditions women to be healthy. You should read uh, Biopower. You should read... You should read Biopower, and then you should read feminist responses to Biopower. Yeah. You know, that's a Foucauldian thing. And it's accessible. That's accessible. Yeah. yeah. The students, um, the things that are harder for undergraduate students, I think, is when you start reading things like, Deleuze and Qatari is very challenging. Um, but the yeah. ideas are really interesting to them. 
Okay, yeah. A spillage theory is really interesting to them. Our students talk a lot about, I think, I don't know if it's just because of the way my colleague Matt and I both work, like where we make like official looking things and then we make like zines and weird stuff oh, too. Yeah. Um, but they're really interested in the relationship between like unofficial amateur or I'm, I'm putting this in air quotes, right. amateur. Right. And sort of like the professionalized, uh, they're, they're interested in official and unofficial, like yeah. those things. That's too, interesting. That's like my jam. So, um, you know, there's a point where we, we teach, we talk about a territorialization. Mm. So how, how like a territory poaches the expressions of another territory, right. which Deleuze would call deterritorializing. And then that sort of subculture has to like rewire itself. Yeah. Um, and they see it all the time. Like, like if you think about seventies punk, right. Yeah. At one point in time, seventies <laughs> punk was like, I'm against it all. I'm going to rip up my jeans and put safety pins in my jacket and hang out at this uh, record store and listen to the sex pistols. Well, now you can like buy that. You can buy right. those jeans you can buy that stuff to make your hair look like that at Hot Topic or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's a classic like kind of example, right? Of just the way capitalism sort of poaches the yeah. subcultural. Yeah. Students are so interested in that. I think because they're trying to figure themselves out too at right. the same time. Like, mm -hmm. what is my identity? And then they kind of realize that identity is a really flexible thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I think you know, the, the primary text is really hard to understand and they'll, they'll look at it and then they'll come cross-eyed to class. Like, well, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And the truth is that's kind of how I feel when I read it too, but it doesn't stop me. I'm sort of excited by that challenge, you know? Yeah. And a lot of our one-on-one -on -one studio visits and conversations are just kind of like, what did you think about this part? You know, it, it doesn't feel so much like, it just kind of feels like two people who like ideas talking, you know, right. yeah. so the students make things in response to the discoveries they make. Yeah. I, yeah. This is actually a really good way to kind of lead into to my last kind of couple of questions that I ask everybody. And I want to ask you the the one question that I usually save for the very last question. I'm going to ask you the sec make it the second last question. Okay. And I'm going to ask it in two ways because it connects directly to what we're talking about. Um, I'm, I'm always curious kind of who the the writers or critics that have really inspired people and like who are the who are the the either the texts or the books that have kind of really influenced you. Mm -hmm. um, but I also want, so, so that's part A, but then part B to kind of continue what we were just talking about, who are the, the theorists that you would recommend, you know, and we've kind of been talking about this already to a student or to someone who's listening to this, that is kind of like what we're talking about where they know this exists, but don't know how to start where, how would you tell them to, to like dip their toe into this? Well, it's a little, I'll start by saying, um, when it comes to, maybe I'll answer this okay. kind of answer it however you want. Yeah. <laughs> I, that was a weird grouping of questions. I know. <laughs> First it's, it's a little tough to say every student should read X because every student is like a universe in and right. of themselves, right. depending on where that student is, what their background is and what their interests are. Maybe they should read one thing before another, but yeah. I think, um, for what, what's good for graphic designers to read in terms of critical theory, I, I think it, uh, they should understand Marx. They should understand Marxism first because they are entering into the heart of capitalism, right? You are, yeah. you are an agent of imagery. You may be tasked with branding, marketing, and selling. You should have an ethical underpinning in that yeah. approach. And that, it, that means engaging Marx first also means that you kind of have a basis for a lot of other stuff. Yeah. I, I think Bart is a really important person to read for students. And that's, I think, also... He's important to read not just because he's talking about language and he's talking about sort of like multiplicitous meaning. He's yeah. talking sort of authorship in a way which is interesting, but also not without its flaws. You mm -hmm. know, we, we talk when I talk with my students about authorship, the question of privilege comes up a lot. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important thing for a yeah. person to think about. But Bart is also so accessible that he he kind of gets you hungry for more. You know, right. it's a great start out. Um. And then from there, you know, I, I think I th a lot of people don't know if deconstruction is really so important. But I still think it's so important. Yeah. I, I really love deconstruction. So do I. I'm so uh, glad you said that. <laughs> and I think it's important because, I mean, you see it all the time, like in the media, the kind of like binary thinking that's out there. Are you this or that? Mm -hmm. Are you for us or against us? Like Derrida gives us permission to say, I am all the things. I think of all the things yeah. simultaneously. Absence is a little bit presence, you know, gray. Mm -hmm. It's all gray. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, it gives us permission to kind of 
decenter our thoughts a little bit. Um, and I think it's important, you know, for people who, again, because there is a kind of ethical responsibility being a designer. Yeah. So I think those things are important. Um, I also, and I don't know if this is a must do, but I think it's useful for students to engage uh, theories of desire. Um, mm, our yeah. students really love reading this essay by Zizek called Coke as Objet Petit A. It's in the oh, Fragile Absolute. It's a really, it's kind of beautiful because if you, I don't know if you've seen any of Deleuze's films, but he often uses the example of Coke as like the ultimate commodity. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because it's empty, you know, it yeah. doesn't quench your thirst. And then Diet Coke is even more because it doesn't even give you calories. Right. It's just right. consuming the nothingness, the void, you know. But the idea is that it, and our students are also, and I think this is a lot of people, our students are very nostalgic, mm -hmm. especially down here in the South. They're very nostalgic. Oh, yeah. But a discussion of desire and, and how desire is necessarily unattainable in a capitalist system is a really important thing to engage before you go out into the world and you're asked to sell things. Mm -hmm. I think you need to understand those mechanisms mm -hmm. for whatever reason, however you decide to treat them, whatever. But I think it's important to know like how desire works, yeah. you know, and how that maps onto even like things like memory and history and stuff like that. So yeah. I'm really interested in students understanding conditions of truth. And that, that's, that seed can populate any number of avenues in a right. practice. Um, the, the things I'm reading now-ish, and I already have like a list for the summer, they usually correspond to what I'm dealing with in my, in my independent work, mm -hmm. but I'm also, I have another, I have sort of two fascinations at present. I'm kind of working on a project, which is not seen a whole lot of the light of day yet, but it's a long-term project that I, I anticipate will take me a few years to, to get mm -hmm. to a point where it's publishable, if it's publishable. But I'm, I'm really interested in historical reference in graphic design. Mm. And I'm interested in theory being a link for analyzing that, mm -hmm. being the kind of way that we unpack yeah. historical reference. I have been writing some things. I've been making some things. And I've been doing some pedagogical experiments. <laughs> I have like students that take a special topics course with me. And they read things like, um, like they, read, uh, they read Bruno Latour. They read like... Um, they read a little bit of Derrida's hauntology theory. Yeah. We talk about, uh, I really love this book by Svetlana Boim called The Future of Nostalgia. Um, I don't know that. It's fantastic. It's, I actually learned about it from Ian Lynham. Oh, yeah. I read it, and I wrote him later, like, thank you so much. This has been important to me. Um, it's a really great book. So I'm really interested in unpacking um, nostalgia because it's something we dismiss really readily. We're like, oh, that's nostalgic. Blah. Right. So there's a lot to nostalgia. It's a very historical, cultural mood. And there's destructive ways of, of deploying nostalgia, and there's really productive and interesting ways that it it's really kind of about the personal intersecting with the collective. Yeah. And, I, and I'm really interested in, in having more critical teeth for, for those kinds of discussions. Yeah. So I've been reading about that. I'm also reading Benjamin for that reason, too. I love right. Benjamin. Those things are also get, finding their way into my studio practice because I'm really interested in um, like, and I'm also really interested in the situation as international. Like, how does the individual intersect with cultural, the cultural, yeah. in terms of like cultural myth, rituals? I mean, that is directly from my thesis. It's yep. just taking a different form now. Um, so I read a lot of stuff like that, and it's it's coming. It, it looks different in different activities, but I think the sort of like, I don't know. My brain is revolving around the same sort of sun. You yeah. Know? yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's where I am right now. That's so interesting. You I will say that this summer, this summer I get to, to go on a studio residency in Mexico. Oh, wow. And I read a lot of, I'm just going to say it kind of bluntly, I read a lot of like dead French guys. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I love the dead French guys, but I feel like I need to build on that with like some decoloniality and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, planning yeah. to dig into Mignolo this summer. Okay, yeah. Um, and I'm also interested in a, a thinker named Manuel Delanda, who writes like know. the next stage after Deleuze. He writes about assemblage theory, okay. but he's he's got a different life experience. So I'm really interested to to kind of see he's he's marrying that with like uh, like some more like theory of society. Oh, interesting. So I'm, I'm gonna that's gonna be my summer reading list or, or yeah. those two. Papers. That's great. This you you started answering my final question a little bit, or we've kind of been talking around this question a little bit. Um, but I'm interested in, I'm curious kind of what you think are the issues or topics that, uh, you know, designers should be talking about and, and yeah. thinking about right now. Yeah, I think about this a lot. Um, our field is expanding so much and 
I really like think that's an asset to what we what our discipline is, what our field of knowledge is. I still want to see a place for studio practice. I still believe in like form, visual, material form. Yeah. yeah. But what I'm really excited about that is starting to happen and I would like to see happen more is that graphic design discourse and the way we talk about our history is more inclusive. Yeah. Like we're including people who are non-Western, women, people of color, and people from uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important to me that we reflect more of the world in our discourse. And that's starting to happen. And I'm really excited about the projects where that's happening. I hope someday that I can contribute to that. But yeah. I'm you know, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I'm. I think about that especially all the time, just with this podcast, because I'm. I'm. It's still way too Western focused, uh, and that bothers me. And I don't. I. It's embarrassing to say, but I. I. I don't know the best ways to broaden that scope. Well, I think you've given. Um, like, haven't hasn't uh, Francisco Laranjo been on your show? Yeah. yeah. Like, people who are doing that work have been on your show. So that's. Honestly, that's better than a lot of things, <laughs> you know? Okay, um, well, thank I was not saying that for a, for a compliment, but thank you. <laughs> but, I mean, I feel like I'd like to see more of uh, more of that, yeah. you know? And I don't know. I, I know when I, when I started studying design as, a, as, a, as an 18-year-old who had come from a, a socioeconomic background that was pretty different than all my classmates, mm-hmm. I remember thinking, like, where is my, like, slice of culture in this discourse? And right. I didn't really see it. So I learned later about unofficial forms of design and, you know, blue collar sorts of design. And I'm interested in that, too. Right. So now I read things that are pretty, like, you know, I guess intellectual. I'm just really interested in the full scope of, of what design is from from like really like abstract ideas to like making lettering, you know, just I'm interested in all of it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I guess like that's I guess that's what I think needs to. And that may be because that's my own interest, but I, I really, I think that there's a lot of interesting criticism happening. I'd like to see more people reading it. Yeah. About yeah. It. yeah. I guess, I guess that's what I would, how I would answer that question. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. I mean, this is, this was so fun and this was so interesting to me. I feel like, I, like you said like 20 things that I could just keep talking to you about. Um, so thank you so much for, for your time and this conversation was so fun. Thank you for thinking of me. I really enjoyed this. And and I just really like this show. I'm really, I want to commend you on, you know, there's a lot of projects out there where people are like, let's talk to designers. But your your project has gotten to a level of depth that I just think is really, really needed. So oh, thank you. Oh, that means so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> this episode was recorded on February 27th, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.